call. Get to the bathroom right on time and getting out of there on time. Wasn't me. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As you know, we have been spending some time in this chapter. I think it's probably a key chapter in, in your life of really understanding um, a lot of things. And the last couple of weeks, we really have focused on how the resurrection of Christ really impacts you. And uh, last week, we saw how we are to view. And really, you know, we talked about the, probably the hardest thing is for us as Christians to do today with all of the stuff of the world that's around us and and the, a lot of the phoniness of Christianity that we have to deal with uh, is to keep our perspective and keep our focus on what God's called us to do. It's so easy to lose that. Many times, and I'm sure you feel this way too, it feels like that, you know, I'm in a little, little rubber raft in the middle of a tornado and t- typhoon, you know, on a raging ocean. And, and that's exactly what the world is portrayed at throughout the Word of God uh, the great billows of seas and waves, and, and many times uh, those things uh, begin to overwhelm us. And I told you last week, probably, I think, for me anyhow, I can't speak for you, but uh, something that I've always kept focused on, and I, I talked to about it last week, I told you that in this life, if you don't learn to use the promises of what God's coming is going to do for you and what's coming for you, then you'll never get through the struggles of today. And I gave you some good verses, and I hope those verses now form up for you, uh, you know, some new prayer card verses that you can use in your own personal life. Uh, We saw in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, where the Bible says that a Christian should purify himself uh, even as he is pure. What does that mean? It means that you, you focus on what's coming. You realize that life today on planet earth for you and for me in our lifetime. Bible says, what is your life but a vapor that appeareth for a little while and fadeth away? God saved you for a purpose. He saved you for a reason. There's a reason why uh, there's something that God wants you to do within the reason that why God saved you. And many times God's people never accomplish that in their life. They go through their whole life. And they never do anything for God or at least never find out what God wants them to do and then uh, give their life in doing that. And we learned a lot of things about the resurrection. We learned that we're to purify ourselves even as we're pure. Bible says that when you got saved, you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside you. But even though that is so, we have to perfect ourselves daily. Not sinless perfection in any way, shape, or form. But perfecting ourselves, the Bible says, for the work of God getting ourselves to the place that we keep ourselves pure from the world so we don't lose our focus. The only way we do that, and I'm just being honest with you, the only way that we do that in the world that we live in is to focus on what's coming and what God has for us in the future. Boy, we saw some great verses in Romans chapter 8 last week. We, we took probably, I think, one of the greatest studies in the Bible and really just touched the surface of it. We talked about the great study of the first Adam, versus the second Adam. We know now that the first Adam sinned in the garden, and because he was denied the tree of life, the second Adam fulfilled what the first Adam failed to do in the garden, and he became the tree of life. We studied about the image of God. 
how that when you got saved, you were uh, inside of you, you got God's image. But you still have to get the body. And that's really what chapter 15 is all about. It's about the resurrection of you and me, this, incor- this incorruption putting on, uh, uh, being coming, uh, this corruption putting on incorruption uh, based on the resurrection of Christ. And today we'll finish out this chapter. And again, we're going to deal with another aspect of, of this great chapter in this book. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but uh, and this is how I learned the Bible years ago. Uh, I like to break the Bible down into the proper section. Bible talks about rightly dividing the word of truth. And yet I found that chapters naturally break down. And if you're paying attention here, this will be the fifth division in this chapter. And I think you need to get those divisions down because they're very important in helping you break down that chapter. You remember chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, there we talked about the defining of the gospel, and that was a great principle that we all learned. We knew what the gospel was based on the Bible. In chapter 15, verses 5 through 38, we talked about the doctrinal importance of the Bible, of uh, the resurrection, excuse me, how important the resurrection is doctrinally to us, that without Christ's resurrection, we're dead in our sins. In chapter 15, verse 39 through verse 44, we talked about, that section talks about the glory of our resurrection, and that focuses it back on you and me. And uh, that's an incredible section too. And in chapter 15, verses 45 through 50, and this was last week, we talked about the passion of our resurrection, the perspective of it, what it really should mean to you, what it really should mean how to help you. We talk about the victory in Christ and the victory that we should have as Christians. The victory you're going to see today lies in the fact of you understanding the passion and the perspective of our resurrection. And today, the fifth section, chapter 15, verses 51 through 58, and this will be the process of our resurrection, how it actually happens and transpires and takes place. You know, there's a key word that I think is probably one of the most misused words uh, in all of Christianity today, and it's the word translation. And uh, you had to study it sometime in the Bible. The word translation only shows up about uh, two or three times, maybe four. Uh, But it's a word that's used very exclusively in the Bible. And I've told you many, many times that the key to understanding things about God is to get the Bible's definitions, not man's definitions. And uh, when you study the word translation in the Bible, you see, we think of the word translation going from one language to another. And I'm not saying that that's not true. It is. But in the Bible, God never uses the word translation uh, uh, from one language to another. God uses the word translation from one place to another. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, it talks about Enoch was translated, that he should not see God. What did Enoch do? He went from one place to the other. Now, that's one of the greatest keys into the Bible that you're ever going to get into, and we certainly don't have time to talk about it this morning. But we're going to talk about, in a general sense of finishing out this chapter, our translation. We're going to go from this corruptible to an incorruptible body. We're going to talk about that process today, and and we'll finish out that chapter. So I would put those five breakdowns in there as you come down through that chapter. And uh, we'll look at that process uh, as we get our glorified body. Now, last week I told you that the number one thing our life should uh, be revolve around uh, is Christ's coming and uh, His coming for us. And you find two days in the Bible. Those of you that just finished Bible basics, 
you know now that there's two key days in your Bible. The one day is called the day of the Lord. And you'll find that throughout the scriptures and that always will set the context for the second coming of Christ. The other day in the Bible that you're going to find is called the day of Jesus Christ. Now, most people today think that they're the same and of course they're not. The day of the Lord will always be a reference to the second coming of Christ and the day of Jesus Christ will always be a reference to the rapture of the church. And uh, that's the way uh, we look at it and uh, understand it today. And it's always been an amazement to me, you know, when you study the Bible. I love character studies in the Word of God. I think that you gain so much from them. Uh, we got a Herbert Lockyer years ago. He's, he's long dead now. He wrote, a, he wrote a series of books that I thought were absolutely spectacular. And they were called the All Series. And uh, he put out about 14 or 15 volumes that, that uh, really make studying the Word of God a, a lot easier. And uh, he put out a book that had all of the feasts in the Bible, all of the holy days in the Bible. He had a book out that all the children in the Bible. He had a book out all the names of Christ or God in the Bible. And it made studying the Bible really uh, an easy thing. Uh, unfortunately today, uh, we, we carry in the bookstore the two books that they put back in print. And I think they're, they're, they themselves are worth their weight in gold. And uh, one of them is all the women in the Bible, and the other one is all the men in the Bible. And what you get out of those studies is character studies. I think Arthur Pink, uh, before he got all screwed up on Calvinism in his early books, anyhow, I think he did a great job of laying out, like in Gleaning in Genesis, the character studies of the characters in, in Genesis. Really great stuff. And I've learned a lot over the years, and I think one of my favorite ways to study the Bible is to study people in the Bible. Because in the ministry, we're working with people. And you'll find every kind of person that you're going to deal with uh, throughout the Word of God in the form of character studies. But I think the most amazing one that I've ever studied that really goes along with what we're talking about today, the process, the rapture of the church, the catching out, the day of Jesus Christ, is the Apostle John. I think that without a doubt, anybody who would know their Bible would know that John in the New Testament is probably the greatest picture, greatest picture of the church in all of the New Testament. And uh, he's a great picture of what your life and my life should be. Now, we know that originally there was 12 apostles. And out of that 12, we know that there was three that are commonly called the inner circle. That's Peter, James, and John. And uh, when you look at the 12 apostles, you basically get a, a slice of what Christianity is like. You had 12 apostles. One of them was a phony. So it tells you that in any church, you're not everybody who says they're a Christian probably is. But within the other 11, there was three that really had a closer relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you would study it through the Scriptures, you'll find that every time there's a major event, only three men are present. At the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, when God uh, transfigured Christ be on the cross and at the second coming and glorified him, you'll find in the text there, Peter, James, and John. It was Peter, James, and John that was there at the raising of, of, of Jairus' daughter. And just like today, you know, in any church, certainly this church, but certainly any church, 
there, you're going to find that within any congregation across America, there are certain people who just tie in closer to the things of God than other people. And you find it in the model there, those 12. But yet within that three, Peter, James, and John, you'll find there was one that went all the way. And he sets for us the model of what we want to look at today and what we want to talk about today because he was the Apostle John. I don't know how much you've studied his life. I've preached messages about this many, many times over the years, so some of you, this is old stuff too. But you'll find that when you come through the accounts, you realize that the apostle John was the only apostle that Jesus says that he loved. Now, I know that he loved them all. But in Bible study, you're going to find that when you see that of all you got here, and this is the only guy that Jesus says he loves. And Jesus had a special love for John. And may I step a little bit farther out and say that in this room, Jesus, uh, I don't mean this in a bad way, but Jesus, Jesus has a special relationship with some of you more than he has with other people in this church or any church. And you say, how can that be? For God so loved the world, he loves anybody. I'm not talking about loving you. God loves everybody. But you know as well as I do that uh, uh, you know, when you study it, that John and Christ had a special relationship. And there's God's people in this church and churches across Christianity today that have a more special relationship than just average Christians. It wasn't the fact that, that, uh, that uh, God loved John more than the rest of them. It was the fact that John loved God more than the rest of them. And that's really the key. And you see it in everything that happens. You really do. You're going to find that uh, John's the only one that goes all the way to the crucifixion. Immediately when the world starts to shake, everybody's gone. The closest one to it is Peter, bless his heart, but he's outside at the fire and he denies the Lord there. But John is on the inside. John goes all the way with Christ no matter what transpires. Now, you know what? There's some of God's people that are just like that. Some of you will go to the end. I, I, I say it many, many times. You know, we run, when everybody gets here, we probably run close to 300 people. But I'm not under any illusion. If somebody asks me, well, how, much, how many are running in your church? You know, I'll say, oh, 250, 270, somewhere in there. But you know what? I just say that because I don't want to get into a protracted conversation with them. Truth of the matter is, if the push come to shove and the world came down around our shoulders like it did with the 12 apostles, we'd cut down our size considerably, I guarantee you. Say, how do you know that? That's what happened there. You see, those 12 apostles are a picture of what we are. And I'm not entering any illusion. I don't mean to be negative this morning, but I, I don't mind any illusion everybody sitting in this room is saved, just like there was one that was not saved on the 12 that the Lord picked. Hey, and I'm not in any illusion that um, the majority of Christians in the world and in churches today are doing the job. It'll always be the inner three. But when really push come to shove, even the inner three, they all bailed except John. One of the interesting things that I find that really makes John a type of the church. Did you ever notice this? When Christ is being crucified, John is right there. And uh, the mother, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is right there. And Mary, the mother of Jesus in your Bible, is a picture of the nation of Israel. Oh, it's so clear, it's unbelievable. And as strange things happen while he's hanging on the cross, he looks down at John and his mother, and he says the strangest thing. 
he says to his mother, looking at John, Mother, behold your son. And he says to John, John, behold my mother. In other words, he gave the watch care, Jesus, of his mother to John. Now, she's a type of the nation of Israel, and John's a type of the church. And you find in Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 11 that the church today, you and me, has the watch care of the nation of Israel. See how it works? John's an incredible study. He really is. John is the only man in the history of the world that I know of. He does something that no other man does. He accomplishes something that nobody I ever knew anywhere down through the Bible ever did. It's at the Last Supper, and uh, Christ is telling them who's going to betray him. And every one of the disciples, every one of the disciples, it starts, it names them right down the line. Everyone that looks at him and, and says, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? You see, deep down inside, they all had a doubt that they might just be the one to sell him out. When it came to John, John didn't say, is it I? John just says, who is it? John knew it wasn't going to be him. Do you know today it's not going to be you? See? That's how it works. And then John does something that nobody else does through the history of the Bible. And I think this is probably the, the catalyst for me that really moves my heart. He, at that Last Supper, the Bible says that he, he lays his head on the breast of Jesus. Now, that may not be significant to most people, but to me it's a real thing when I put it into context. Because John is the only man in the history of the world that I know of that really heard the heartbeat of God. And you know that's what it takes for you to become a John today? You know, back in the book of Proverbs, the Bible talks about a strange man and an evil woman. And that evil woman back there is likened to a, a, a street-walking prostitute. Bible says that the simple guy walks down on her corner. She's got her face all painted up. But yet, when you study this hooker, <laughs> she is a, <coughs> she is a, she is a, she's a religious person. And what the picture is, she's trying to entangle this young guy and get him all messed up. And that, that's a picture of false religion in your Bible. Bible says in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of what? There you are. There you are. Now, I always thought it was instructive that, that, that taking that into an inspirational application, I'm supposed to be a type of John, and uh, the world out there is a type of the seduction that wants to pull me away from Christ and get me to commit spiritual adultery or fornication with the world. And so this woman on the street corner who pictures religion without Christ is drawing this guy in. But yet I can't, I can't miss the parallel. Every, every prostitute in this town, when she talks about the guy she picks up or the guy that, they all call him a what? Now why is that? Why is that? The picture's incredible. He's a type of the church. And John is the only guy in the Bible that lays his head and, and hears the very heartbeat of God. Because Jesus Christ was God manifested in the flesh. And inside of him was the sinless spirit of God. And when he listened to that heartbeat, it shows the relationship that he had that the others didn't have. And I want to tell you something today, my friend. That's what separates the 12 from the 3 to the 1. 
And the only other person that I've ever found in the Bible that can hear that heartbeat is a New Testament Christian because the heartbeat of God is the Word of God. And when you lay your head into this book, just like he laid his head on the breast of the Lord Jesus, this is where you get yourself separated from the world. This is where the things that were once sparkly aren't as sparkly anymore. This is where the things of this old world grow go dim and don't have all the attraction anymore. Why? Because you hear the heartbeat of God and the heartbeat of God changes everything about your life. Because in that heartbeat of God, you find what God wants you to do and then you, you do it. It's no accident based on all of that. Did you ever notice how that John was the one that what, what wrote the book of Revelation? And to me, it's the capstone of the Bible. And what it shows me when we put this type together and we're not doing a very good job this morning because there's millions of things I could talk to you about, but we're just trying to get to where we want to go here. Uh, the book of Revelation is a book where it shows us all the intimate details. It's really a closed book. Not too many people understand the book of Revelation. And uh, a lot of people think they do, but there's a systematic way of laying out the book of Revelation, and God closes that loop with a lot of people simply because they don't really believe what they're studying it, and they won't take it the way they find it. But you're going to find that John now is a type of what you and I should be. God reveals to him all the intimate details of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the time to the end. I think the most instructive thing that we learned, and this is where we really stopped last week, all of Revelation deals with Christ's coming, and we know that that we should be focused totally and completely on the coming of Christ. That ought to be the thing that drives us every day and keeps us when this whole world tries to overwhelm us. And I think that the thing that sums up John and his life of what you and I should be as a type of the church is the last prayer that's offered in the Bible and the last thing that he says in Revelation chapter 20, verse, 22, verse 20 and it's a prayer that should be on all of our lips. And he simply says this, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. You see, the thing that got him through, and, and historically he's on the Isle of Patmos, and he's exiled. There's various things about the way, uh, stories out there how he died. I'm not sure anybody ever knows how he died, but I guarantee you it probably was not pleasant. But the thing that got him through is the same thing that will get you through, and that is his relationship with Christ and his looking and his prayer for Christ to come back. Now, we know that there are three parts to this harvest of God's people. We learned that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23, where he's talking about, and he says, every man in his own order, then he gave us the order. He talked about the first fruits. Now, we know that that's the Old Testament saints that went up with Christ. Then he says, the harvest, that's the rapture for you and for me. That's what we're going to talk about today. And then he talks about the the, and then cometh the end. That's the gleanings. Those are the tribulation saints that go out right before the second coming. So we got that pretty much down now. And today we're going to look at the resurrection of the church. We're going to look at the concept which is commonly called and understood by the term the rapture. And uh, we're going to look at two different passages that make up two definitive passages in your Bible on the rapture of the church. And you want to mark these two in here. Let's read the first one here, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's pick it up in verse 50. It says, Now I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. 
Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought the past the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, ye shall be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus today. And I pray, Father, you'll take this time, that you'll use it for your honor and glory, that everything that's said and done will be pleasing to you, that uh, you will touch our hearts today, challenge our hearts, and bring us back on point. Bring us back to the focus of what you have for us. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, traditionally, in in a historical sense, the Baptists are basically the ones who hold to the concept of the rapture of the church. Not exclusively, but from a historical perspective, that's certainly true. You're going to find that the Methodist church does not believe it. The Lutheran church does not believe it. The Catholic church does, dismisses it away. The Jehovah Witnesses don't believe it. The Mormons don't believe it. The Episcopalians don't hold to a concept of a rapture, nor do the Presbyterians. You're going to find that the Congregationalist churches don't. And uh, you're going to find that some evangelicals do, but some don't. And you're going to find that uh, uh, some charismatics do, but many do not. Or they got it screwed up. But my point is that exclusively uh, is is one of the Baptist distinctives that go back down through history. Now, I say that because in our second passage here, now we want to turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Once we get this complete, then we'll, we'll start to go to work on this here. Let's read uh, that passage here, 1 Thessalonians 4, pick it up in verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the work of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, because what I just said, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, in the Christian world, and I use the word loosely, uh, you have basically, and I don't, my goal is not to turn this into a theological session this morning, but uh, there are certain things that you, you have to learn to understand where you're coming from. There's basically stu- uh, three schools of thought taught on the, uh, on, the, on, the, on the second coming of Christ, and of course you know that the second coming of Christ includes uh, the rapture of the church. And the first school of thought, and you need to learn these if you don't know them already, because you're going to bump into it a lot. The first one is what we call post-millennialism, post being uh, after, uh, you know, uh, and, and this means that in this form of thought, Christ will return after the religions of the world clean the world up. And uh, this is why you find the social gospel today. 
This is where you find, believe it or not, this is why you, it even extends itself uh, into uh, the environment crowd, you know, that want to make the, uh, I was looking at some, some guy's blog here a year ago and uh, who used to be a very strong Bible teaching guy, and now he's talking about how that the, you know, save the earth, just like he was talking about at one time, saving uh, lost people. And it's a th- mindset that we've got to clean the world up. And that's why you find the same mindset that, that uh, you see, uh, we have a lot of crime in, uh, go ahead and rip that, I'll wait. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you being, but it's no big deal. See, if, if I wouldn't have said it, somebody thought I ripped my pants, so I'd rather have them know that it was you, not me. See? Anyway, what happens is this. You find in the concept that, that we have a lot of crime in our country. Kansas City has a lot of crime. And, uh, and the, the, the city's answer to, to youth and gangs and crime and, and, and unemployment, nobody wants to get a job, they always say the same thing. They think the answer is more education, see? The more you get educated, the more you come out of the ghettos and you become, you know, you become a, a product, of, a good product of society. You see, that's, that's not true. Man doesn't need a better, to make more money to be better. He doesn't need more education to quit killing people. He doesn't need to be, go to school and have better teachers to get better grades to get out of the gangs. He needs a heart change. He needs what Jesus Christ does for him that changes his attitude about those things. When it starts with the heart, then it works its way out, you see. But this is, what a, this is what the social gospel mindset is. We make the world a better place to live. We bring in all these great things. <clears throat> we do all these things to get the world better. And when we clean it up, then Christ looks down and says, hmm, the religions of the world really got that place looking good. Now I'm coming back, see. And that's what they believe. Many religions believe that. That's why they, they're so big on, on social issues. That's why many of them support revolutions and get behind revolutions. There are some religious organizations out there that teach that Jesus was a revolutionary. And they actually teach that, that if you have injustices in your country, that you have a right or a Christian right or a Christian duty to take up arms, overthrow that country because that's what, and that's what happened in, in, uh, in Nicaragua. That's what happened in El Salvador. And that's where liberation theology came from. It started with a Jesuit priest uh, down there in, uh, that was assassinated down there in El Salvador. And I stood right in the very square where they had that massacre in that very cathedral where they, where they uh, Rome, uh, Romero was his name, and they, they, they killed him right there in that spot. And, uh, you know, so you get that, but all coming about to bring in the kingdom to make it a better place. Then you have amillennialism. And amillennialism says that Christ's coming is a, is a spiritual thing. Nobody sees it. And uh, it's something that takes place inside man. Or it's something that happens spiritually. And we just keep going on and on and on and on and on. And it, and it just gets better and better. And Christ comes in a spirit form, but we just never see it, never completely, no visible return of Christ. Now, both the post-millennial and the amillennial do not accept a rapture. And that was my point in telling you about that. They do not believe in a rapture. Rapture does not figure into their theology. Now, basically here, and uh, all down, and I believe, you know, the biblical perspective on it and, and is, is that we believe in a premillennial return of Christ. And I don't say that based on any books I read. I say that based on the Bible. It's set up after a premillennial 
uh, concept. I mean, it's just that simple. And um, I could take you into the Bible and show you the order of the books of the Bible. And this drives a lot of people nuts, especially the higher educated crowd. I could take you into that Bible and I could show you how the order of the books in that Bible show you the premillennial return of Christ. And of course, uh, that just drives people nuts today. And that's part of my job. I enjoy that part of it. Anyway, we believe our position is that the Bible teaches that Christ will come back at the second coming. And when he comes back, he's not coming back. And I told you this last week. First time he came, he came as the loving Savior. He came as the prophet, and we know what he did, they did with him then. So he's not coming back that way next time. Next time he's coming back, he's coming back with an army. And that army is going to take this world by force, and they're going to set up, as our chart says over there we've taught, the iron rule, millennial reign for 1,000 years. And he will visibly come back. The Bible says in Revelation 1-7, every eye shall see him. He'll sit on the throne in Jerusalem. He'll bring in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And he'll put it under an iron rule, military dictatorship, Revelation chapter 19 and 20. And that's the Bible format from Genesis to Revelation. But before he does that, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he comes to take away the church. You remember in our Bible basics, I've showed you how the Bible was broken down, basically, that God has his wife, the nation of Israel. We talked about this Thursday night, and Melody's good question, and the Christ has the bride, his bride, the church. And we've studied now, and we know now how that all works and all takes place. It all kind of lays itself out. And uh, Christ, before he comes back to put the nation of Israel back in her place, uh, Christ takes his bride out. And we know that as the rapture of the church. We believe and teach that. And this is called the rapture of the New Testament saints. The Bible calls it uh, a harvest. And, of course, it is. Uh, you can see it all through the Bible in picture and type. Absolutely. You know, we all talk about the fact that uh, Noah in Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, the Bible says that Noah built an ark. And when Noah built that ark, he got into that ark with his family. And then God's judgment fell on all the earth, didn't it? And yet when you go over to Matthew, the Bible says that's a picture of something. See, how do you know that? Because in Matthew, it says, as it was in the days of Noah. Remember that? So shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Now, that's a parallel. It shows you that the times that Noah lived in are going to be like the times that before Christ comes back. And it doesn't take any rocket scientists to go back and figure out how wicked the world was. Uh, but that's not my point. Did you ever see what happens in chapter 5? In chapter 5, you have a man named Enoch. And Enoch's in chapter 5, and he walks with God. And the Bible says Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. Enoch's the only man in the Bible that will never die. You say, Elijah never died. No, he's coming back and going to die in a tribulation. You need to study the rest of your Bible before you say that. Enoch's the only man in the Bible that never died. You know why he's the only man in the Bible that never dies? He's a picture of the church going out before Noah and a picture of the coming of the Lord and his judgment. It's all through the Bible. It's all through the Bible. I mean, you couldn't miss it if you wanted to. I mean, I guess you could. In Song of Solomon chapter 2, that great book coming down through there in verse 13 where he's talking about and expressing his love for the church, Christ to the bride. What does he say down there? He says, arise, my fair love, my, my fair one, arise and come away. Picture the rapture of the church. When you come through Revelation, the book of Revelation is an incredible book. Revelation runs 21, 22 chapters. And find, if you break it down in a spiritual sense, 
We know what John wrote it now. If you break that thing down, not doctrinally, but in a spiritual application, you know what you find? You find in the first three chapters, you find uh, the church, the church, the church, the church, the church, the church. In fact, you find a reference to the church 19 times. Then in chapter 4, the Bible says, I looked and a door opened and I heard a voice as a trumpet, just like 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and that voice said, come up hither. And you know what you find? I'll tell you what you don't find. You don't find the word church anymore in the book of Revelation. You know why? It's gone. So if you really want to get the book of Revelation down, here's what you got. Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3 is a picture of the church age. Chapter 4 is a picture of the rapture church. Chapter 5, 6 is a picture of chapter 5 is a picture of what takes place up in heaven. 6 through 19 is a picture of the tribulation period. 19, door opens up, somebody comes down, second coming of Christ. 20 is the millennium. 21, new heaven, the new earth. And 22, out in eternity. The whole book of Revelation just broken down that simple. That's the way John wrote it. That's the way John wrote it. I'll tell you something else. One of the greatest pictures of it is Christ himself. You ever see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? You ever see that? When Christ was born? In the accounts when Christ is born, if you study it, you'll find that uh, when you lay that thing out, Christ came first privately to his family in a manger. Then 30 years later, he was exposed to the whole world and started his public ministry. You see that? He came privately first to his family, and then sometime later, he proclaimed himself to the whole world. All right. Second, that was the first coming of Christ. What's the greatest key to the Bible? Consistency. So at the second coming of Christ, he comes to his family first, me and you, rapture the church, and then seven years later, reveals himself to the whole world, and every eye shall see him, second coming of Christ. See how it works? That Bible's a great book. That Bible's a great book. That's called consistency of Scripture in Bible study. Now, in recent years, and I say this in the last 25 or 30 uh, people have abandoned the teaching of the rapture. You might as well know that. Much of it's based on the silly minds of, of, of pathetic Christians who can't figure out the Bible. That's my own injection into it. Uh, I've been told many, many times by somebody that said, well, you still believe the rapture? And I said, yes, I, I believe the rapture. And that one guy said, well, Baptist preacher, he said to me one time, he says, uh, well, do you, uh, you still believe the rapture? And I said, absolutely. He said, we don't believe it anymore. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, I read a book and really opened my eyes. And I said, well, I read one too, opened my eyes. But you didn't read the same book I did. I was talking about the Bible. He wasn't. <laughs> he said, well, you know, I read a book, this guy, and he said, you know, the word rapture is not even, the word rapture is not in the Bible. I said, whoa, I never knew that. <laughs> Shakes my faith. I said, are you a Baptist? He says, I am. I said, show me the word Baptist in the Bible. I said, your Bible there? Yes, it is. Show me the word Bible in the Bible. See how stupid people are? They think because you can't find it in there that it can't be. That's just, that's just the way people think today. I mean, that's just the way they think. I mean, the word rapture not found in the Bible. And he, and he goes on to say, well, the idea was started, uh, you know, back in the, around the latter part of the 1800s there with the start of dispensationalism. And I thought, oh, dispensationalism started in the 1800s now, huh? Oh, yeah, 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 it did. And you know what, Darby. Oh, I said, Darby's Rangers? He said, no, 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 Darby. Darby that was the great Bible teacher. Oh, I said, that Darby. Oh, I said, okay. And I said, uh, and I thought, I didn't say anything to him because he's an idiot. And I, you know, how do you help an idiot? I, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, when people get their brain cells dead on something like that, you ain't going to change his mind. I felt sorry for the guy because here is again, here's a typical Baptist. And I'm going to tell you something. Probably in the next 10 years, 5 years, 15 years, if Jesus doesn't come, most Baptists aren't going to believe it anymore because they've gotten away from the Word of God. And, uh, you know, 
I, I tell you all the time that if you, the two things you've got to have, two things you have got to have in your life to really get the Bible together. One of them is the Bible itself, and the other one is the history of the Bible. Now, here's a guy telling me that, you know, the word rapture is not in the Bible. He don't even know where the word rapture came from. You think before I'd read somebody's book and just buy into it, I'd do a little investigation on my own, but people are lazy today. He didn't know where the word rapture came from. I know where the word rapture came from. You know, back through the dark ages, uh, when the Roman Catholic Church was, uh, really ran the world and threw the world into darkness by uh, cutting off all of the, uh, all of the Eastern uh, religion material that was coming out of Antioch, uh, when we know from Acts chapter 11, where they're first called Christ at Antioch, that Antioch is the hotbed of Bible Christianity. You know where Antioch's at? Antioch is in Syria. That's Turkey today. And Antioch is in Syria. And in the first, second, and third century, right up to about the beginning of the Dark Ages, which starts around 500 A.D., that was the hotbed of Bible Christianity. Well, once the Dark Ages came in, you've had a bunch of Bible-believing groups that won't buy into all the heresy that's being taught, and they form the nucleus of what we would look back in history as Bible believers. One of those groups is called the Waldensians, and the Waldensians come out of Italy. And the Waldensians probably in church history were the greatest single force uh, that carried the gospel forward. And it was the Waldensians who first called the term rapture, not Darby. But when you don't know your history, then you fall for these things. It was the Waldensians out of Italy that first coined the word rapture. And it came from, during that time, the only Bible that they had was the old Latin. Uh, there was an old Syriac and then an old Latin both out of Antioch. And I'm not talking about Jerome's Latin, which came about 400. That was a corrupt text. But they had what was known today as the Old Latin, out of the Old Syriac, out of Antioch. And that Old Latin Bible was the Bible of the Dark Ages, and it was the Bible of the Waldensians all the way up uh, till the 12th, 13th, 14th century when the English translations began to come out. But it was from that Old Latin that they got the word in Latin, rapto, which meant to be taken by force, to be seized by force. And that's where they likened the concept to the rapture, to be taken up, to be caught out. Uh, anybody who knows what the word rapture means in our own language should make the Bible parallels instantly. The rapture has to do with intimate love. It has to do with, with being swept off your feet, as we say. It has to do with a girl meeting a guy the first time or a guy meeting a girl the first time and love at first sight and being swept off your feet, hopelessly in love, hopelessly gone, raptured off and just raptured, taken over this guy's love, takes him with her beauty. Oh, boy, just that's the word rapture. You know it has to do with a relationship. I mean, Fanny Crosby, she lived long before Darby did. She wrote in your hymnal there on page 225 a great song, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. You know what the second verse says? Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture. Now burst on my side. She knew about it. You see, evidently the Waldensians had a better insight into the Song of Solomon and the love relationship they should have with Christ uh, better than uh, some of God's people. And they understood exactly. So when they word saw the word rapto there, even though it's not in your Bible, that was a word that they coined. And, of course, uh, it, it, it puts it into context. It has nothing to do with whether it's found in the Bible or not. The concept is still taught. And the real issue is, you know, we've been a long time without a final authority of the Word of God. And without God's book, 
God's people lose all the truth that God has for them, and the end result is, you know, they get into all these goofy things and don't know what they're dealing with. Now, let's look at verse 51, and we're going to see the second issue with the rapture. First issue is there ain't one. Second issue is, and here's why people can't get it, verse 1, Behold, I show you a mystery. Now, the real reason why God's people can't get anything out of his book and I find this all the time. The reason why they, the Bible is a closed book to them, and the reason why it is, is they approach the Bible like any other book. And the moment you do that, the, the door of revelation is slammed shut in your face. You're not going to get a thing out of it. And within the Bible, the Bible says, behold, I show you a mystery. The rapture in the Bible is a mystery. In truth, if you really want to Get into it. We're not going to get into it very far today. This will be something for Thursday night. There are seven key mysteries in your Bible for the church. Now, there's 12 mysteries for the nation of Israel in addition. And rightly dividing the word of truth, you get the seven mysteries to the church. You get the 12 mysteries to the nation of Israel. You don't get them down, and you're a joke when it comes to figuring out your Bible. Because this is the system that God did. You see, you're not going to learn the Bible your way. You do everything in life your way. So do I. That's what we're all famous for. Your parents told you that all the time. You didn't believe them until you were 20 and had your own kids. But we've all our life, we wanted to do things our way, and God pretty much goes along with it and lets us bump our nose, bloody our nose, scratch our knees, whatever. But the bottom line is, when it comes to that book, you're going to do it his way, or you're not going to get it. And uh, you, don't, you, don't, you don't get these down. Uh, you don't learn your Bible. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, and I think this is hilarious. Paul, remember him? I think he's somebody pretty important. Paul told us as pastors and Christians, we are told to be stewards and to be faithful in keeping the seven mysteries of God before our people. Paul said that. This isn't me up here saying I think these are important. Paul said, Paul said that we should be stewards of the mystery and faithful in keeping them. Yet I guarantee you, you went out this thing, went from church to church to church today. Hey, I've been around this business for 40 years. I know where it's at. I'm telling you, you couldn't find two guys in this city who either understood them or was teaching them if he did understand them. And yet we're told to be stewards of it. You see, the seven mysteries are the lead-off in the Bible to understanding God's systematic theology of laying out the Word of God. And it's based on God's perfect number of seven. Now, I know a lot of people don't like numerology and they reject numerology. That's okay. That's okay. I understand. You can prove anything with numbers. I, I understand that. But you'd be hard-pressed to explain away some of the, some of the uh, uh, consistencies in the Bible when God uses the number seven over 1,200 times in the Old Testament alone. And I guess you suspect that's just a coincidence too. Come to truth, maybe you're a coincidence, but I don't know. <laughs> but you're going to find that seven in the Bible is a number of perfection. And seven in the Bible is the, is, the, is the key to that thing. You see, the seven mysteries that we're told in the rapture is one of them now, the seven mysteries are the gatekeepers to really the rest of the system. Because when you, when you get into that, uh, it opens up the whole book. I, I started to write down at one time uh, in my Bible, uh, as I went through the Bible over a number of years, uh, all the different seven series, because I... My hopes were to put them in a book at some point of, of called God's Systematic Theology. But I gave up. One, I ran out of pages in my Bible. They're just everywhere. And every time I thought I had them all, I found 20 more I didn't have, and I just realized that it's an impossible task. But I'll tell you, 
I realize that when you start to come through your Bible, once you get the seven mysteries and you understand them, it opens up the concept of seven resurrections in the Bible, seven distinct baptisms in the Bible, seven judgments in the Bible. You'll begin to find out when it's talking about the first Adam and the second Adam, there's seven trees in the garden. You'll find there's seven marriages in the Bible that match up to our great studies of your marriage to Christ. You'll find there's seven barren women in the Bible in the Old Testament who are a picture of Israel and her barrenness of not bearing fruit. You'll find that there's seven titles of God in the first five books of the Bible, commonly called the Pentateuch. You'll find in your Christian life and my Christian life, there's seven stages of spiritual growth. You'll find seven major fundamental laws in the Bible. You'll want to study a complete relationship with Christ, and there's seven Old Testament men that'll give you every aspect of what you need to have in your life. There are seven things you're told not to be ignorant of. First Thessalonians chapter 4, we already saw the rapture is one of them. We're not to be ignorant of seven things, yet God's people wouldn't even know what they are. There are seven things that changed about you the day you got saved, found in the Bible. There are seven things that God hates, yet there are seven things that God loves. There are seven types of kisses in the Bible. We talked about that a couple of Thursday nights. There are seven things you're told that after you get saved, you're supposed to add to your faith. Thinking of committing suicide, are you? Well, there's seven suicides for you to study in the Bible, just so you do it right. <laughs> there are seven keys, literal keys, in the Bible that open doors in the Word of God. Very important. There are seven divisions of the prophets in the Bible. There are seven things that please God. There are seven character qualities of God. And there are seven Old Testament men, like I told you, there are seven New Testament men that lays it out. That's God's systematic theology. Across this country in church history, you'll find that God uh, had seven great awakenings, starting with Whitfield back in the 1700s and right up to the 1950s. And then you'll find also that the devil had seven counterfeits to counterfeit those seven great outpourings of the Holy Spirit of God. The whole world is built on that system. Now, with that system and the seven mysteries given to the church, here they are real quickly. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, you have the mystery of God being manifested in the flesh. That'll take you about a year to work out. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That deals with the fact that how does a holy God live inside somebody sinner, a sinner like you and me? That's a good theological question. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, the mystery of the church. How are you and I, even though you're still in your physical body and yet our spirits, how are we one in Christ? That's a good piece of theology for you. Romans chapter 11, verse 25, the mystery of Israel's restoration. Nobody believes that today. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, the mystery of iniquity. That deals with the Antichrist. Revelation chapter 17, Babylon mystery religion, the mother of harlots. That'll kick you a while. And then, of course, the one we're looking at today in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, the mystery of the rapture of the church. Now, you've heard me say, you've heard me say that uh, many times that uh, God's people today say that there are no rapture, yet they couldn't lay out any of these seven mysteries. I'm very suspect of somebody who likes to make grandioso statements about the Bible because he read them someplace, but when you put the spotlight on him and throw him an open Bible, he folds up like a broken accordion. Uh, I'm not impressed by that. I don't care what you believe. I, I respect anybody what they believe, but my thing is, you want my respect. Do you know why you believe what you believe? Don't tell me what so-and-so told me. Open up that book and show me why you believe what you believe. And if you don't, the bus will be here in a minute. Now, these, these mysteries are only given to people who love that book and love God. Now, in putting all this together, 
There's five keys, five keys to you getting this out of the Word of God. There's five keys that unlock the Scriptures. The first thing in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, you're told that you gotta, you got to read it. All right, I understand that. John chapter 8, verse 47 says, then after you read it, you got to believe what you read. All right, I can deal with that. Once you get to that thing, John chapter 5, verse 39 says you've got to search the Scriptures. That you've got to get in there and dig these things out. They're not going to come to you. The time that you spend digging out your Bible, and I, I tell you all the time, you know, people always say to me, you know, well, I just don't feel like coming to church anymore. You know, I just don't feel like I get anything out of it. I have any kind of, any kind of relationship with people there. I didn't know you were coming here to have a relationship with people. I, I must have understood. I thought you were coming here to have a relationship with God. And I'll tell you something else. I'll tell you something else. Well, I just don't get anything out of it. You only, my grandmother used to say a great truth. You only get out of something what you put into it. I mean, that's just simple stuff, isn't it? Some of you are great ball players. Some of you are great basketball players. Some of you, you ever think you just walked on the court and was good at it? I mean, you, you played little league, played bo- bo- uh, basketball, played football from the time you could walk. That's what made you good. You know why you got out of it what you get out of it? Because look at all you put in it. And you wonder why you can't get the book down. Why? It's just that simple. It's just that simple. So you got to read it, you got to believe it, then you got to search it out, and then you got to, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 15, you got to study it. And you take all of those things and do all of those things, you still won't get it unless you put the fifth ingredient to it, and that's found in Psalm 119. And that is, you got to love it. It's hard to love a book. We talk about loving God, that's simple. We talk about loving Christ, that's simple. You don't hear many people talking about loving a book. You know why they don't believe they got a book worth loving? I believe he got a book worth loving. I believe that God wrote that book. He parachuted that down in my backyard and gave it to me. I'm sorry about you. You got yours at a bookstore. Mine just fell down there and I grabbed it. He wrote it to me. That's my book. And I love him for it. I heard an old guy one time tell a story where he, this young kid wanted to be a, you know, wanted to be a, a in his town they lived in Tibet. It was this old man lived on a mountain. It was the greatest, wisest man, uh, called him the guru. And this young kid uh, grew up in the shadow of that. And he watched people going up to this old man and, and having all kinds of things with him and just enjoying all those things. And that, that kid wanted to be part of that. And so he went to this old man one day and he said, he said, you know what? He says, I've watched you. And he says, you've got the wisdom of the world. And he said, I want to I have that. And he said, I want you to give me that. The old man said, well, okay, son, you want to get it. Come on down about 3 o'clock this afternoon. We'll start your training. The kid was elated. He went holding everybody and told him, I'm going, to be, I'm going up to study with the old man. I'm going to be a guru too, or a guru also, I guess. I'm going to be like him, you know, and I'm going to have all of the great knowledge of the world. And everybody was patting him on the back and shaking hands. He showed up at 3 o'clock. He thought the whole town would be there. Nobody but the old man. And there was a lake right there, and the old man was standing out there in the water about up to here. And the old man says, you want to be a guru? You want to know all the secrets and you want to know the truth of the world? And the old kid said, absolutely. He says, come on out here. We'll start your training. So he said, wow, this is really spectacular. You know, what are we going to do here? I mean, getting into the water. This is some kind of ceremonial thing here. And the old man come up there, and the old man brought him out, backed up. The man was a little bit taller than him, got him. The old man was right here. The guy was right about here. And he said, oh, here it comes. And he, he began to open, look up, and he said, what's next? About that time, the old man, he had hands, you know, like two tree trunks. He just put his hands on that kid and just put him down on the water. 
And the old man just stood there and looked forward, you know, like the little grasshopper guy on the television years ago, you know. He just held his hand down there, you know, and held his head down. A kid was squirming around and screaming about the thing and that, that. And the old guy, you know, waited for about, you know, a minute, minute and a half, you know, and the kid, and then he brings that kid out there and he throws him down on the beach and he just stands there like that. And the kid is puking, choking, coughing up water. I mean, just trying to talk because he's so enraged and so mad. Now he feels like he's been duped. This guy was supposed to be a wise guy, and now he's a fool. Now he looks like a fool. How am I going to go back, everybody, and told me, well, my initiation was he stuck my head under the water, and I almost drowned it. That doesn't sound like a wise guy to me. He got up and began to scream and spurt when he got to, under composure, and the old, young, old man just stood there with his arms crossed looking at him, and he, got that, and he just railed on him back and forth, and, and then he stopped, and the old man looked at him. He said, you want to be a guru? You want to have the wisdom of the world? You want to know all the truth? Well, let me tell you the key to it. Young man, when you want truth, just like you wanted air, then you shall find it. You want that book? When you want it, like you want the breath that keeps your body alive when you don't get it, then and only then you're going to get it. Got to love it. You see, the key isn't studying it. The key isn't reading it. The key is loving it. I know lots of people that read it. They don't know it any better than anybody else does. The key is loving it. So it's no wonder that God's people turn from the clear teaching of the rapture. I mean, they've been kept out of the loop, and they've been told all of their life, you know. So when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 through 58, and 1 Thessalonians 4, he writes as he believes that Christ could come in his very day. And you can feel the urgency in what he does. He was expecting it any day. So we teach that the rapture could take place at any moment. We call that the intimate return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that too. I believe that he could come anytime, anyplace, anywhere. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, he says, he says that he says, uh, we shall not all sleep. Some of us are going to be alive when he comes. You know, sleep in the Bible over there in John, uh, Luke chapter uh, 8, verse uh, uh, 52, uh, is defined as death in the Bible in some cases. So when he says we shall not all sleep, it means not everybody's going to die. Some of us are going to be alive when he comes. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verse 16 says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with a trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I love that. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. You know, one of the amazing things about God, and I, I, I love things when I see things like this in the Bible. I know God's a loving God. I know God is a good God. I know that even though I've been through some tough times in my life and hard times in my life and probably have some hard times coming, I know that it isn't because God has anything against me. Even when I'm against God, God's not against me. And I know that many things I've done that God should have turned his back on me because many times in my life I've turned my back on him, but God never did. I know God loves me. But it's things like I'm about to show you here, you know, that uh, are incredible. Now, many of you have lost loved ones. I lost my dad when I was 19 years old. I'm 61. There's not a day doesn't go by that I don't think of him or see something about him that reminds me of him. I wish I had, would have had a lot of time to say some things to him that I never said, but I never did. 
but that doesn't change the fact that I think about him all the time, and I, I got found a few pictures of him, you know, and I just hang on to them. I got to put away someplace, and every once in a while, I'll get them out, look on them. But when I read that thing like there, you know what I see? I see God understanding my pain. You know, we lose a loved one, and the first thing we want to do is blame it on God. And that's the way we always go. That's of the devil. Why did God take my brother? Why did God take my dad? Why did God take my mom? God didn't take anybody. Let me tell you something. God's plan never was that anybody died. God's plan that Adam and Eve, they'd eat of that tree of life and that thing would just kept on going. It was man that screwed it up. It wasn't God. In fact, after a man did mess it up, you know what God did? He came down and fixed it again. And then we want to get mad at God. I understand. I understand, but you're wrong. And I look at that thing, boy, down there, and that verse says this. It says, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven and, and shout with a voice for the archangel with a trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the cloud. You see that? And then we go to meet the Lord. You know what God does? You know what God's going to do? I love him for this. He's going to let me meet my dad before I even meet him. On my way up, I'm going to meet my dad and then me and my dad are going to go together to meet the Lord. That's what it says. You know why? Because he's a high priest that can be touched with our infirmities. That's why. He understands the pain of a loss of a loved one. And God is such a good God that even though he can't wait to see you and me, he understands our human side because that's the way he made us. So in the resurrection or rapture, I'm going to get to meet my dad. My dad and me and him are going to go in hand in hand to meet the Lord, and then we're going to be whatever with the Lord. I love that. No wonder he says, comfort one another with these words. You betcha. I do. I do. Now, verse 52 says, it, it says it all takes place in a twinkling of an eye. That's instantaneous. You know, a twinkle of an eye is a sparkle. And, uh, you know, we talk about it in our sense, you know, when, a, when somebody first falls in love, you know how it is. You first fall in love with somebody and you think about that person all day and finally you're separated, you know, you've got to work for a living and finally you get together in the evening or something like that and you're waiting for her or she, you're waiting for him, you know, and uh, they, they walk into the place where you are and you look at each other after being separated for 20 minutes, you know, it's a terrible time. <laughs> and you can see it, the sparkle, the sparkle, that twinkling, that sparkle. It's a, it's a picture of that love relationship. Our rapture is going to take place in the twinkling of Christ's eye. The sparkle in God's eye is the church, you and me. In verse 52 says, the last trump, the trumpet shall sound. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16 says, the trump of God. I gave you Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 a little while ago. Uh, it says, the voice of a trumpet come up hither. And you need to know this. This has messed up a lot of people who don't know the Bible very well because they think they see a set of trumpets over there in Revelation and then they see these trumpets here and they, they, they fail to search the Scriptures. So they think they're the same trumpets. So it leads to a heresy that many people think today that the church is going through the tribulation period because they see these trumpets and they think they're the same. Duh, there's two sets of trumpets. You're told to search the Scriptures. You're told to study the social self-approved. And when you search the scriptures and you try to match these trumpets up, they don't match up any way, shape, or form. See, you've got to study to show thyself approved. There's two sets of trumpet. There's one for the church, and then there's one for the nation of Israel. And the one for the church, when you hear that trumpet, we're gone. We're gone. But it's like a voice. It's like a voice. The one for Israel isn't a voice. It's just a trumpet being blown. Now, he says in verse 52 and 53, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. 
Why? Verse 53. For this corruption must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Now that's exactly what he's told you. Uh, we saw it last week in verse 45 through 50, didn't we? We saw the first Adam was of the earth, earthy. And because of the first Adam, death passed upon all men because of his sin. But we saw the second Adam was the Lord from heaven. And where the first Adam put him into corruption, put us into that terrestrial body, the second Adam put us into the celestial body and put us into the glory of God and gave us the image back, raised in his glory. That's what he's saying. It goes back to what I told you in the Bible. There's two lines concerning me and you. One represents death, that's Adam's line. The other one represents life, that's Christ's line. Now look at verse 54, and this is where it starts to get good. Not that it already hasn't been good, but this is where the victory is. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, and this is a quotation from Isaiah 25, 8, saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Now, I love the way the Bible lays itself out. It says, death is swallowed up in victory. Let me ask you a question. Why did he use the word swaddle there, that death was swallowed up in a victory on a passage that deals with Christ's resurrection that brings you and me into the resurrection? Let's test on your spiritual cap this morning. Why did he use the word swallow? Why did he could have chosen any word? This is the Bible. This is God's get God's chain of events working all the way through the Scriptures through the Holy Spirit of God. Why did he use the word swallow? Nobody? Oh, Jim back there. Big Jim with a drinking shirt on. What is it? Jonah. Yeah, absolutely. And what is Jonah a picture of? The resurrection. So he uses the word, chooses the word, death is swallowed up in victory. You know why? Because Jonah going down there and being swaddled with that whale, when you get over to Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, and they wanted a sign of the resurrection, Christ said, there's only going to be one sign, and that is the sign of Jonah when he was swallowed up. And the fact that death swallowed up Christ, you and I have got the victory this morning. You know, I know, I said last week, my dear friend, the victory lies in this fact. And I'm telling you, in this life, if you don't learn to use and hold on to what's coming in your life, you're never going to get through the struggle today. And the victory that you and I should have, the victory that you and I should hang on to is the fact that when Christ died and when he came out of that tomb and he resurrected and you got in Christ, bless God, you already got the victory won. You see, you've been listening to the wrong propaganda. The people, the world, the devil, and your friends have been telling you that you don't have a victory. And you believe them. You're not focusing on what's coming based on what Christ did. And the victory for me, the victory for me, Romans chapter 8, verse 26, 27, and 28, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us in that day. Why? Because right now my victory doesn't lie in the fact that I may fail tomorrow or I may fail today, or I failed yesterday. My victory lies in the fact that, yes, in this life, I may lose some battles, but bless God, we have won the war. And we have been set free. There's the victory. That's why he says in verse 55, Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, verse 56. And the strength of sin is the law. But you see, 
The law said when a man died, he had to stay dead. But Christ fulfilled the law. And when he resurrected, he broke that law. And that law no longer applies to me. I'm alive in Christ Jesus. Now when this old frail body dies and goes into a casket and goes into a ground, do not mistake me for being dead. This old temple is gone, but I live forever with the one who died for me. There lies the victory. That'll get you through tomorrow. And no matter what comes. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says, For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, Christ, also himself likewise took part of the same. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. And that is the devil. Boy, there's the victory. When Christ went down in that tomb and he came out the third day, the Bible says, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18, he had the keys of death and hell. And those keys in my life and your life give you the victory that even though you may suffer through this life, you're supposed to. That's why you draw nigh to God. Get in that book. Let God do everything that book says it's going to do for you. That's why you got to stand. Be strong. God's got a job for you to do. Oh, he says in verse 57, But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us the victory. That's the present tense. That's for today. Look at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved, now based on what we've seen so far, based on what we now understand about the process of our, of our resurrection, the rapture, the changing of our glorified body. And I told you before, I'll tell you again, you'll never get through the struggles of tomorrow. You'll never get over the defeat of yourself or your friends or the filth of this world until you start focusing on what he did for you and what's coming. Therefore, cause of what I just said, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Oh, he says, my friend, what's lacking in our life today is simply this, to be steadfast. Colossians chapter 2 verse 5 says, For though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and steadfastness of your faith in Christ. See that thing, beholding your order? We use that, get your life in order. We use that to say, I need to get my life in order. It's your life is either order or it's chaos. It'll be order when it's in God, in the Word of God. It'll be chaos when you try to do it yourself. But he says, and the steadfastness of, of your faith in Christ. Steadfast, steadfast, standing fast, steadfast, steadfast. Why are so many of God's people up today and down tomorrow? Why will you go out of here today all pumped up and fired up and thanking God and being, telling God you're sorry for being so stupid, but by next week you'll be right back down into again? I'll tell you, the answer is you're not trusting in the victory God gave you and you're not steadfast in that victory. 
You're not beating up the world. The world is beating up you. You're not in control of your life. Your life's in control of you. Your flesh is running you, and it's because of all of the things in our lives that we just simply will not do what the Word of God says. Then he says unmovable. I think the best rendition of this in the Bible is found in Song of Sodom in chapter 5, verse 15. When it talks about my Christ, when it describes the beauty of my Lord Jesus Christ, and he says his legs are as pillars of marble set upon sockets of fine gold. Marble is the hardest rock there is. And you know that God would never use a man-made metal to display uh, his son. He wouldn't use iron or steel. That's man-made. Now, he picks the hardest rock because God is a rock. His work is perfect. And the hardest rock the man known is marble. Why do you use it for tombstones? It lasts forever. <clears throat> And the Bible says his legs are as pillars of marble, set on sockets of fine gold. You see, he's unmovable. It's one thing to be steadfast and hold your ground, but unmovable. Unmovable. Your your legs become like pillars of marble, set upon sockets of fine gold, deity of Christ. You stand on and in the Word of God. You're unmovable. You don't change what you believe. I believe today exactly what I believed 40 years ago. If you'd go back in the archives and dig out sermons that I preached 20, 30, 40 years ago, it would sound just like I do today. I, I, I say the same things then I say now. I believe what I believed 40 years ago, and I believe what the Waldensians believed 1,500 years ago. On those things, I am unmovable. <clears throat> I may be movable on some things, but when it comes to what the book says, what the book teaches, and what it lays out in the Bible, whether it's man, whether it's institutions, whether it's religion, I'm unmovable with that book. My advice to you this morning, my friend, is real simple. Take a stand and then make a stand. Take a stand for God and then clear off a spot and make a stand. Quit letting the world push you around. Quit letting your flesh push you around. Take a stand and then clear off a spot and make a stand and become steadfast and unmovable till he comes back. See, that's our job. That's what he's saying here. We're ending this chapter. He says, therefore, my, my beloved brethren, and based on what I've told you in this whole chapter, you understand now completely where the victory is, the resurrection, how you got it, first Adam, second Adam, how it all comes to you, okay? Now that you know that, three things, my friend, steadfast, unmovable, and then the third thing, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Notice the word abounding. God's people should be moving forward, not backwards. God's people should be moving forward, not standing still. And this comes back to the thing that I talk about all the time is the continued spiritual growth that you have to have in your life. I mean, in reference to this great verse of being steadfast, unmovable, and all abounding in the work of the Lord, in all reality, and you might as well, most of you, many of you already know this, but 
it never, never hurts to repeat it. If you ever get into the ministry at some point or you ever get a large part of this ministry at some point, you need to realize what I'm about to say. You always can't call, count on everybody in any church, not just this church, any church. You cannot count on everybody to pull his or her fair share of the load. Ain't going to happen. I mean, you might as well get it straight. I figured it out first six months I was in the ministry. Get it straight, accept it, work with what you got. You just can't. The work of God will always be carried out by the, by the minority of people, not the majority. And it doesn't matter how good the church is. You're going to find that that is a characteristic of Christianity. You're going to find that God's faithful few has always been the minority. You're going to find that God always gets the work done with a remnant. And you're going to find that you can't count on everybody to pull his or her fair share of the load. There's people who across this city, across this country, they love to go to church on Sunday morning. They love to be in church. They even bring their Bible and take note. They just don't ever do anything for God at all. And there might be wonderful people and great people, but you couldn't count on them a push come to shove if your life depended on it. And maybe someday it will. In your Lord's work, you will find that, that doing the ministry, if you're faithful in what God calls you to do, this is what he's talking about abounding. And I've seen it. I've seen it all my life. I've seen it in some of your lives right now. If you're faithful in what God calls you to do and God gives you to do, and you're faithful in doing it, you know what God does? God gives you some more. And pretty soon you're doing that and you're doing more. God gives you more and you're moving forward. And that's what the Bible means when it says always abounding in the work of the Lord. Moving forward in ministry. That's exactly how it works. And it's true of any church. It's true with any pastor. It, it doesn't matter if you've got a bad pastor or a good pastor or a bad church or a good church. This is a characteristic that you find. In all of my 40 years and thousands of places I've been in, talked to, been around, I've never seen a variation from it. It's just the way that it is. But I watch that abounding process. I watch, like, for instance, and this is what I, which is what a pastor looks for. We, we kicked off our, our you know, we're going to look back and we're going to see the issue we had, or they had at the City Union Mission of cutting us down to 30 was the greatest move God had. Now, we could have looked at that in two ways. We could have got our nose bent out of joint, or we could have seen it like we talked about it and said, hey, God got something else. But when we launched this homeless ministry aspect, now, you know what? And it's a great thing. And I understand that it's a ministry where you can come once, twice, go back and forth. Maybe your wife will go this time, you'll go this time. That's fine. We got plenty of people to make the thing happen, and it'll always take care of itself. But what you see in that, as I see in everything, you know what you see? You see men and women coming up through that, and God getting a hold of their heart, and they're saying, this is exactly what I've been looking for. This is exactly what I've been waiting for. This is exactly what I need. This is exactly where I can put my hand. We've got three or four families in our church that were one time that were homeless themselves. And God takes something like that and as it keeps abounding, that's how you bring people up. Not everybody's going to stand up and say, this is for me. That's not what it's designed to do. It's the design that, that God will bring up those ones and God will put what it needs to be. But in your life and my life, we always have to be abounding to the work of the Lord. It's just the way that it has to work. That's what makes some people absolutely invaluable in ministry. Any pastor will tell you this. It's like going back to the, the 12. You had 12 men. One was a phony, left 11. Out of the 11, three were good. 
out of the three, one was excellent. Uh, it's, it, it, it just, it just things like this, when, when, when people grasp it and see it, it's what makes people invaluable in ministry, ministerially speaking. Now, I love everybody, I and mean, I do, and I would do anything to help anybody, but I'm not a fool. I know how much more we could do if everybody would just get on board, but that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Some of God's people, you know, I've seen them all down through my life. You know, I've had people that, that moved away uh, from ministry and they went to another state. They had something here, they did there, or maybe they went and took their own church someplace. And it takes, you know, when they leave, it takes four or five people to take their place. They're doing so much and they're doing it so well that it's like it leaves a little gap and you've got to have three or four, sometimes five people to fill their place. Someone else leaves and you don't have to replace anything. Or they're not doing anything. I mean, it's just that simple. I had a pastor tell me one time when I was preaching. He said, uh, he said uh, last year you were here. And I'm getting ready to preach. He tells me this. He said, last year you were here, would you preach? Remember what you preached? And I said, yeah, we did that church, here, church history series. And he said, yeah. He said, a lot of people liked it. So he had two families that didn't like it. And I began to, he said, they left the church. I said, you mean they left the church over what I preached? He said, yep. I said, well, I, I began to say, well, I'm sorry about that. He started to laugh. And I said, what's so funny? I said, I wouldn't be laughing about six people leaving my church. He said, well, I wouldn't normally either. But he said, it took absolutely nothing to replace them. And when all six people, all six people left, the offerings dropped a dollar and 86 cents. abounding in the work of the Lord. Then lastly, and here's what he says. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why? Why is your labor of what you're doing now not in vain? Remember last week's sermon, how we ended? Get your fork out. Why, why as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why? Why? Because there's something better coming. The glory. The glory, the joint heirship, and the day we get raptured and be with him. And like the old song says, And forever I will be with the one who died for me. What a day, glorious day. That will be, you know how it goes. Sing that chorus with me. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see and I look upon his face. Yes, the one who saved me by his grace. Best part. And he takes me by the hand and leads me to the promised land. What a day, oh glorious day, that will be. You see, even come, even come, Lord Jesus. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus.